Hello, and welcome to a special Obergefell versus Hodges U.S. Supreme Court decision edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. On Friday, June 26, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down a historic landmark decision uh, striking down all remaining state bans on same-sex marriage. Uh, it was the same day as they handed down the decisions of Lawrence versus Texas and United States versus Windsor. So they added even more history to a very big day for gay rights. Art, what can you tell us about the decision? Uh, how many hours do you have? This <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's, there's lots to say about the decision. But to start off with the essential points, uh, in January of this year, the Supreme Court granted cert to review a decision by the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals on consolidated cases from Michigan, Kentucky, Ohio, and Tennessee, all four states in the circuit, on marriage equality. In all of those cases, the federal district judges had ruled for the plaintiffs. The Sixth Circuit consolidated the cases and ruled for the respondents, for the defendants in those cases. And the plaintiffs in all those cases filed petitions with the Supreme Court, which were granted. Uh, The Supreme Court was faced with lots of different petitions, which phrased the questions presented differently. They boiled it down to two questions to be addressed by the court. Do same-sex couples have a right to marry under the 14th Amendment? And if they do marry in a state that allows such marriages, do they have a right to have those marriages recognized in other states also under the 14th Amendment? In a decision for himself and four members of the court, Justice Kennedy said yes to both questions. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Scalia, Thomas, and Alito dissented and each wrote their own dissenting opinion. Each of them joined other dissenting opinions. Uh, uh, That is, uh, Thomas and Scalia joined other dissenting opinions. I think Alito didn't join anyone else. He was just writing for himself. Uh, And uh, Scalia and Thomas, I think, joined the chief's uh, dissent. Keeping track of all these is is sort of difficult. And there's a lot of overlap between the dissents. But the majority is the one we focus on because it's the opinion for the court. And we should point out, because some people are saying, oh, a narrow ruling five to four, A decision that wins the support of five out of the nine justices is the decision of the court and is a precedent, and it doesn't matter whether it's 5-4 or 6-3 or 7-2 or 8-1 or unanimous. It is the ruling of the court, and uh, it is unlikely that it would be reversed in a future case unless there is a sharp change in the view of the court on the scope of the due process clause under the 14th Amendment. It would be hard to know how someone would have standing to bring a lawsuit trying to overturn this. Well, what might happen would be uh, sometime in the future a state would try to reinstate a ban and then it would be uh, subject to challenge in the courts. So the the issue could come up. Uh, In fact, there there are some instances in history where the court has reversed itself rather quickly on issues. There were the flag salute cases during World War II. Uh, There was a case, uh, a series of cases about whether Congress could require states to pay the minimum, federal minimum wage to their employees. And the court went back and forth on that. But we should get back to this. And Lawrence. Well, that was 17 years. Yeah. That was 17 years. But uh, in this case, uh, there were various ways the court could go. And uh, what the Obama administration had urged them to do 
was to decide this as an equal protection case. Uh, Solicitor General Verrilli, uh, who joined in the oral argument, was asked by Justice Kennedy, uh, are you pushing a due process liberty argument here? And he said, no, we're not arguing that. We're arguing equal protection, that the administration had determined as part of its uh, litigation on the Defense of Marriage Act that sexual orientation discrimination by the government involves a suspect classification and that heightened scrutiny applies. And that under heightened scrutiny, the arguments that states are making to try to support their bans on same-sex marriage are insufficient to, to meet the test of heightened scrutiny. They don't show that the challenge policy substantially advances an important state interest. But that's not the route that Kennedy took. Even though, in his opinion for the court, he invoked both the due process and the equal protection clauses, he only invoked equal protection uh, in the context of a fundamental right, not in the context of a suspect classification. So this is a due process decision by the court. Even though Kennedy refers to equal protection and spends a paragraph or two on it, it's really about Kennedy's view that under the due process clause protection for liberty, the right of same-sex couples to marry is equal to the right of different-sex couples to marry. That's really the essential holding. In his opinion, he goes back through the history of Supreme Court cases striking down state restrictions on who can marry, and there are several of them. And he points out, although perhaps the language wasn't so explicitly clear in the first of them, Loving versus Virginia, by the time we get through the entire chain of cases, it's clear that the court deems the right to marry the partner who is mutually interested in marrying you of your choice is a fundamental right. And if it's a fundamental right, it can't be abridged by the state unless they have some compelling justification. The surprise, or maybe it shouldn't be such a surprise, because Kennedy, in his gay rights decisions, has shied away from using the standard terminology of constitutional analysis. He actually does use a term of art in this case, fundamental right. Yeah. But he doesn't talk about compelling interest. Right. He doesn't talk about strict scrutiny. He doesn't talk about narrow tailoring. None of that. Yeah. In other words, he did half an analysis. Yeah. And if I were a con law professor grading his opinion, I wouldn't give him an A, not because I disagree with the result, but because he didn't expose the entire analysis, yeah. which makes it difficult for lower courts to figure out how and whether to apply this in other kinds of cases. And he didn't, he didn't use the right words, but he talked about it being the unrealistic that straight couples are going to make life decisions based on whether same-sex couples right. can marry. He did rebut the, some of the state arguments, yeah. uh, and, but not all of them. And I, I don't think he, uh, he really took on head-on uh, the argument that this is deinstitutionalization of traditional marriage which will result in traditional marriage uh, being devalued. Uh, he did say that he thought it was unlikely that different sex couples are going to make their decisions about whether to marry based on whether the same sex couples can marry. Uh, but that was only one aspect of their argument. I think what was probably frustrating to some of the opponents of same sex marriage who read this argument was, uh, as in the Windsor case, Kennedy gives such short shrift to their arguments that he doesn't even mention them and take the time to refute them. So Kennedy says we have a fundamental right here, and whether we're talking under the Due Process Clause or under the Equal Protection Clause, when you have a fundamental right, the plaintiff usually wins, and therefore the plaintiff wins, without a lot of discussion yeah. about what justifications the state might have, which means for such a momentous decision, it's relatively short. Uh, a lot of the uh, 
text is devoted to reciting the history of the litigation and talking about the history of the court's marriage decisions, and there's not much on analysis. In fact, Mm -hmm. I think people looking for an equal protection analysis for sexual orientation cases will be quite disappointed to find that there's nothing there. And we had really been hoping that there would be something there so that this would carry over into other areas of litigation. It may still carry over, but more by implication than by what he said. And so a lot of the attention uh, since the opinion came out, in terms of the opinion itself, has been focused on the dissents. And they're full of colorful language. Uh, There is an overlapping theme of all the dissents. Uh, The view of the dissenters that the majority opinion is not good constitutional law, uh, that the court cannot take the sort of vague concept of liberty under the Due Process Clause and expand it so far that it overrides the traditional role of states in deciding who can marry. Uh, I think the most extreme version of this is in Justice Clarence Thomas's dissent. Thomas says, all right, we've got to figure out what does the word liberty mean when it's used in the Due Process Clause uh, initially of the Fifth Amendment and subsequently of the Fourteenth Amendment because the language is the same that uh, either the federal government or the states cannot deprive any person of uh, life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And clearly a ban on same-sex marriage doesn't deprive anyone of life and theoretically of property, and so this is a liberty case, and liberty is, in fact, where uh, Justice Kennedy grounded the right of women to choose to have an abortion in the Casey decision more than two decades ago, It's where he found uh, the right to engage in sex without the state criminalizing it in Lawrence versus Texas. And it's where he found the right of lawfully married same-sex couples to the same federal benefits that are extended to different sex couples in Windsor. So this is all his liberty jurisprudence. And And it came with the same flourishing language that drives the the conservatives crazy. Right, the rhetoric about, you know, autonomy and identity and And, uh, self-definition. I think think we've got some uh, potential marriage vows in the works with the uh, closing paragraph. Uh, It's it's interesting. After the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court decision in 2003, uh, which was the first state high court decision to authorize same-sex marriage, a lot of people based their wedding vows on excerpts from Justice Marsh- Margaret Marshall's decision for that court. Uh, so I think that there's lots to mind Maybe here. Maybe I can, I can give it to readers here. I've got it on my phone. No union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. And forming a marital union, two people become something greater than, <clears throat> than once they were. As some of the petitioners in these cases demonstrate, marriage embodies a love that may endure even past death. It would misunderstand these men and women to say they disrespect the idea of marriage. Their plea is that they do respect it, respect it so deeply that they seek to find its fulfillment for themselves. Their hope is not to be condemned to live in loneliness, excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions. They ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law. The Constitution grants them that right. Well, I think you can, you can fashion marriage vows out of that. Yeah. Uh, so getting back to Justice Thomas. Justice Thomas says... In interpreting words that are used in the Constitution, we should give them the meaning that the framers gave them. And in this case, the framers were themselves borrowing terminology from English law, and that the terminology in English law is rooted in Magna Carta, 
the great charter that was signed by King John in 1215, 800 years ago. In fact, we're celebrating the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta. Magna Carta is not a part of operative English law. In fact, it was revoked by a subsequent king. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but it did refer to liberty. Uh, but he says that at the time, the understanding of liberty was the right to move about freely. And that, in fact, what this meant was that the king could not arbitrarily confine people, sentence them to prison, uh, prevent their moving, you know, sentence them to house arrest or anything like that, that people were free to move about, unless, of course, the sovereign had a very good reason that comported with the concept of due process to justify uh, a restriction on liberty. He says that's the only kind of liberty that we're talking about. And he said in uh, 1791, when the founding generation adopted the Bill of Rights and included in the Fifth Amendment protection for liberty, that's what they were talking about. And when the post-Civil War Congress proposed the 14th Amendment to the states for ratification, they put liberty in the 14th Amendment. They were using it in the same sense. No one, he says, in the case law of the Supreme Court of the 19th century, for example, would have thought of liberty as having any broader sense. It's only in the 20th century that the courts have found in the reference to liberty a broader notion of substantive due process, of requiring justifications on any restriction on a person's ability to do anything that they want to do. In other words, uh, the default position in American law, it's sometimes said jokingly, is you can do anything you want as long as it's not prohibited by law, which is in contrast to totalitarian governments where you can't do anything unless it's specifically authorized by law. So, you know, he, he, he goes on about depriving same-sex couples of the right to marry does not restrict their liberty in any sense. They are free to move about. They are free to get married in any state that wants to let them. Uh, he doesn't really address whether other states should be required to recognize them. I don't and he think. finds a way to use his theory to say that Loving versus Virginia uh, makes sense and fits into his theory by saying it was really about freedom from being arrested, not about well, freedom to get married itself. Yeah, he, he says, after all, uh, arresting somebody and prosecuting them on, on criminal charges may result in their being confined in prison. So he says the Virginia law that was struck down in that case was actually imposing a restriction on liberty. Uh, you couldn't go out of state to get married. That was a crime if you couldn't get married in state. You couldn't come back into the state and live there having married outside it. That was a crime. Uh, there were two felonies involved in the prosecution of the lovings. Uh, so he says there is clearly a restriction on liberty, I mean, threatening criminal prosecution and, and penalties that might include imprisonment. These were felony crimes. Uh, so he says that's totally distinguished. That isn't this case at all. And on a certain level, he's correct, but on, a, on another level, he's totally incorrect because the court in that case also premised the decision on equal protection and that uh, this, these restrictions were being imposed on uh, couples of mixed race but not of couples who were both were members of the same racial group as defined by the state of Virginia, which uh, had a special exemption for the descendants of Pocahontas because of their concern uh, that uh, Pocahontas had an important role in the history of Virginia, and therefore her descendants could marry anyone they wanted, regardless of race, uh, just showing the ridiculousness of the Virginia statute. But uh, he, he, made, he made a whole bunch of... Yeah, I mean, the other very scary paragraph had to do with... Um, dignity. Yes, and he makes... I think he's trying to make the point that 
there is inherent human dignity no matter what a government does to a person. Right, so he, and, and we should relate this back to what he was responding to. Uh, Justice Kennedy's favorite word in developing the concept of liberty under the Due Process Clause is dignity. Yep. That human dignity deserves to be protected from any intrusion or impairment by the government. And he says that it impairs the dignity of same-sex couples to exclude them categorically from marriage. Uh, and uh, Thomas argues, as uh, attorneys for the states who were defending their bans argued, they said, the state cannot confer dignity or take away dignity. Dignity is inherent in the individual human as a matter of human rights. Uh, and therefore, the denial of the right to marriage does not impair the dignity of same-sex couples. Well, Thomas takes this and runs with it. He says, Sl enslavement did not impair the dignity of African-Americans. Uh, that they still had their essential human dignity. Same right. for people in internment camps. Right, during World War II. I mean, this, this was not an impairment of dignity. Maybe it impaired liberty, and certainly it did, since slaves weren't free to leave and neither were people in internment camps, but it doesn't impair dignity. And he says, and marriage doesn't confer dignity. Dignity is there. It's either there or it's not, and the government has nothing to do with it. Uh, the other, uh, well, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the lengthiest of the dissents and the most some some have said the most vigorous and a surprisingly vigorous dissent from him. Our hopes to get him uh, on a six-three opinion uh, yeah. were for naught, as uh, as we saw. Right, and and the the odd thing is he he as much as intimated that if he were a legislator and the issue of same-sex marriage were presented to them to him, he would consider it seriously. He might vote for it, but he said the Constitution doesn't compel it. Uh, his view was that this was an illegitimate exercise of legislation by the court. And he harkens back to Lochner repeatedly. Yes, he, he talks about Lochner. He talks about substantive due process mm -hmm. in that sense. Now, Thomas just totally disavows substantive due process. I don't think Roberts can because he's joined some opinions uh, involving substantive yeah. due process. But he, uh, he says this was a political decision. It wasn't a legal decision. And you can see it in his closing paragraph yeah. where he said, if you are among the many Americans of whatever sexual orientation who favor expanding same-sex marriage, by all means, celebrate today's decision. Celebrate the achievement of a desired goal. Celebrate the opportunity for a new expression of commitment to a partner. Celebrate the availability of new benefits. But do not celebrate the Constitution. It had nothing to do with it. Uh, so it seems clear that Roberts, on, on one level, he's okay with same-sex marriage. And perhaps that explains why, from October 6th through this past Thursday, the Supreme Court never granted a petition for a stay in a case where uh, a federal trial court had ordered marriage equality in a particular state. He, he could have, presumably. I mean, if you add together Scalia and Alito and Thomas uh, with him, he could have voted for it. Uh, of course, he would have needed a fifth vote. Uh, but in addition, the court didn't grant cert last October on the three uh, circuit court decisions that were being proposed for review. And the denial of cert in that case, which would have only taken four votes, the denial of cert allowed same-sex marriage to go into effect in the states directly affected by those opinions and all the other states in those circuits. And ultimately, 
since they were denying state petitions, we ended up with 37 states. With I mean, I think equality. it's clear now that we had a strategic denial of cert in October by the four conservatives. I mean, they yeah. clearly disagree that there's a constitutional right that... But they didn't want it to be established, yeah. and they were afraid that they'd lost Kennedy And I mean, that if, point. now that we've read the dissents, it seems clear that uh, they would have had four votes to grant cert and go the other way yeah. uh, if they had the votes. We should mention Scalia's dissent. Uh, paying attention to Scalia's dissents is more about entertainment than anything else. Uh, he was fulminating as usual. He said, uh, in effect, anyone who would uh, agree to this decision should put their head into a paper bag and hide in shame. And the sound uh, legal reasoning of the Supreme Court has been reduced to the aphorisms of a fortune cookie. Right. I mean, he was, he was having his fun. Uh, I think he had more fun the day before uh, when he was uh, dissenting in the Affordable Care Act case when he said, well, now we, we shouldn't call it Obamacare anymore. We should call it SCOTUS care. Uh, which I think is the first time that SCOTUS, the name of the blog that tracks the Supreme Court, has been used in a Supreme Court opinion. Uh, Justice Alito was basically rechanneling his Windsor dissent. Uh, in, in Windsor, we have to remember, he was disappointed that the court didn't decide the merits of the Proposition 8 case, uh, which is basically the same question that was being decided this week, uh, whether same-sex couples have a right to marry. And so his dissenting opinion uh, addressed that question in the Windsor case, where it wasn't really all that relevant. Uh, he even dropped one footnote criticizing the Prop 8, how the Prop 8 trial was conducted, which was totally irrelevant. So he comes back in this, case, in this case, and in his dissenting opinion, he puts a big block quote of several paragraphs from his Windsor dissent, because that explains his philosophical opposition here. He says, one could have many different conceptions of marriage, and it should be up to the political process to decide which one any jurisdiction embraces. Uh, so all four. Yeah, and Alito also really took up some of the ridiculous arguments that uh, gay people are now going to come after people with different religious beliefs, well, and we should be worried about that p possibility. Well, this, this, was, this was referred to by several of the justices in their dissents, uh, that uh, Justice Kennedy in the majority opinion did not give much solace to religious objectors. And he said, under the First Amendment, people are free to believe what they want to believe. They're free to say what they want to say. Uh, they're free to proselytize or teach that same-sex marriage is wrong. Uh, he didn't take the next step of saying explicitly, but if they try to discriminate in the civil sphere against same-sex couples, they will run up against the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Uh, part of the problem is, and, and this is something people have to think about carefully if they want to marry as a result of this decision, that same-sex couples who marry are only protected from discrimination in employment, housing, and public accommodations in 22 states. And those are states that perhaps have a majority of the American population, but a substantial portion of the country uh, provides no protection on the state level against discrimination. So people can get married, and as soon as their boss sees a marriage announcement in the paper or hears about it, they could fire them without recourse unless uh, some potential litigation that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is pushing forward establishes the proposition that sexual orientation discrimination violates the Civil Rights Act of 64. Uh, we've seen... Uh, an advance in jurisprudence on transgender rights under Title VII, but we've yet to have an extensive body of case law for sexual orientation discrimination under Title VII. We have a few refusals to dismiss cases at early stages by trial judges and magistrates, but we don't have any appellate 
uh, and, and of yet. course, these dissenters completely ignore that real possibility and focus on this idea that people that uh, have a religious objection to same-sex marriage are somehow under threat now to, uh, by gay people uh, now that they've lost here in well, the Supreme Court decision. Well, these are based on more than speculation. They're based on anecdotes that are based on actual cases. And uh, the case that people put forward is the New Mexico wedding photographer case, which ironically arose at a time when same-sex marriage did not exist in New Mexico. It was a lesbian commitment ceremony. Uh, they went online to find a marriage photographer to document their ceremony. Uh, they chose a photographer who sounded good online. They uh, initiated conversation, and as soon as the photographer found out that it was a lesbian couple, they said, oh, we don't do same-sex ceremonies. And it turned into a civil rights case because the couple filed a discrimination charge. And they won in the New Mexico Supreme Court, even though New Mexico has a Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which uh, says that for the government to uh, interfere with free exercise of religion, they have to have a compelling justification. Well, the New Mexico Supreme Court said New Mexico has passed a law banning sexual orientation discrimination, which means that it is a matter of compelling interest for the state of New Mexico to protect gay couples from discrimination by businesses, by public accommodations. Uh, And so the wedding photographer lost, and the U.S. Supreme Court refused to review that case. Uh, So this is put forward as a potential threat to people who provide goods or services in connection with weddings. If they have personal religious objections, they have to look the other way. They have to provide the service. They can't discriminate. Uh, Another question that Justice Alito posed during the oral argument Uh, to Verrilli, the Solicitor General, he said, well, what about the Bob Jones case? Uh, Bob Jones University adopted regulations prohibiting interracial dating by students, and they were subsequently denied their tax exemption as a nonprofit educational institution by the Internal Revenue Service. The U.S. Supreme Court upheld that denial. Uh, They said a compelling interest in preventing discrimination on the basis of race overcame Uh, the free exercise claims of Bob Jones University. Uh, They just were being denied a special tax benefit that we extend to organizations, charitable and educational organizations, that run in a way consistent with our public policy. Well, the question was put by Justice Alito, what about, uh, say, a Catholic university that refuses to open married student housing to same-sex married couples? or refuses to extend uh, student health insurance coverage to the same-sex spouse of a student, whereas they would to a different sex spouse, and really said, well, I don't know the answer to that. We'd have to look at the details. We'd have to see how it would turn out. And so that is built up now by uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Alito in their dissenting opinions to a real threat to religious liberty. I will say, though, Justice Alito makes it sound like uh, people are going to be... their core right to have a certain belief is threatened. Yes. He's, he says he the people will be ostracized and, yes. and criticized and uh, will be treated as bigots. And it, it, this is the same thing with, with Scalia. Yeah. Scalia says, I am not a bigot. I'm not, I don't care whether same-sex couples marry or not. I care about the Constitution and I care about the court. And I care about the court not overstepping its role in interpreting the Constitution. And I would say the general tenor of all the dissents is uh, one of trashing the legitimacy of the court. I mean, uh, Scalia has a whole paragraph about where he goes through the diversity of the members of the court and says there's four from New York. There's no Westerners. California doesn't count. So he goes. There are no Protestants. (laughs) 
you know, he, he, he says this court is not a representative body, so it shouldn't be engaging in legislative activity. They, they're all characterizing what the majority has done as legislative activity. But you can only do that if you ignore a century or more of due process jurisprudence. Uh, marriage, the right to marry, was identified as a fundamental right by the Supreme Court, I think, in the 1890s. And we're talking about a long period of precedent that is now being applied to a new set of facts. And the key distinction, of course, is all of the prior cases uh, involve different sex couples or marriage involving different sex couples because no one was presenting the issue of same-sex couples yet. Uh, The one time that issue was presented to the Supreme Court in 1972 in Baker v. Nelson, they said it didn't present a substantial federal question. And that was, of course, uh, a fairly accurate depiction of the status of gay rights under constitutional law as of 1972. We hadn't won the right to have sex free of criminal law. We hadn't won any case on an equal protection theory yet. Uh, the groundwork hadn't been laid yet for a marriage case. It was, it was dreadfully premature. And Baker versus Nelson is mentioned by Justice Kennedy in his opinion. Mm-hmm. He says it's overruled. Yeah. <laughs> he said it's reversed. You know, it's no longer the law, yeah. if it ever was. Yeah. Uh, and so, he really takes uh, readers through the history of gay rights at the Supreme Court and talks about Bowers misapprehended the right that uh, the gay community was seeking in that case. Um, you know, it's heartening, I think, for people that have worked on this a long time to read through that part of the, the opinion and really see Justice Kennedy lay it out as he does um, and how we got here. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, a very, it's a very fine opinion in many ways. It falls short in terms of using the terminology that is common in constitutional law and analysis to explain the result. Right. Uh, it doesn't connect all the dots explicitly. There are sort of jumps of reasoning, uh, which was characteristic of Kennedy also in Windsor and Lawrence. Uh, It will be interesting to see the extent to which lower federal courts and state courts will find something in Kennedy's opinion to apply in cases presenting other facts. For example, uh, in the Smith-Klein, Beecham versus uh, Abbott Laboratories case in the Ninth Circuit, uh, the court looked at the Windsor case and said, we think the court applied heightened scrutiny. We think there was an important equal protection component in the case. Therefore, in sexual orientation cases, henceforth, we will apply heightened scrutiny. In that case, they used it to reverse a trial court decision where a gay man was kept off the jury with a peremptory challenge. They said the Supreme Court has held that if a particular characteristic uh, as the basis for excluding someone is a protected class, you need to have a reason. You can't use a peremptory challenge. You have to have an explanation of why this person cannot be trusted to make to be a neutral decision maker as a juror. Uh, but they then applied it subsequently to marriage cases, uh, which is very important. The day after the Supreme Court turned down review of the marriage cases from the Fourth, Seventh, and Tenth Circuits, the Ninth Circuit issued a decision using heightened scrutiny using the Smith-Klein, Beecham versus Abbott Laboratories case as a precedent to strike down the ban on same-sex marriage in Idaho and Nevada. Uh, And subsequently, in the Ninth Circuit, the reason why uh, it's almost impossible for those other district court decisions to be reversed by the Ninth Circuit was because they're using heightened scrutiny. And I think even the opponents of same-sex marriage have acknowledged that if heightened scrutiny is the standard, they probably lose. 
so the upshot of this is same-sex mar- same-sex couples should be able to get married in all 50 states wow. and the marriages should be recognized now in the first few days after the opinion came out we've seen there'll be some delays in some states because of the particular situation in those states with respect to litigation for example in louisiana that was one of the only states that we lost during 2014 where a federal judge rejected a marriage equality case so the appeal to the fifth circuit was filed by the plaintiffs actually lambda legal representing the plaintiffs that case was argued in january the fifth circuit hasn't issued a decision uh so obviously there is no basis in louisiana directly for requiring the local clerks to give marriage licenses until the 5th circuit reverses the district court. Although there has been some renegade clerks in Texas and Mississippi. It's that- not renegade in Texas. What what's happened in Texas is my understanding is that uh Judge Garcia who ruled for marriage equality but stayed his ruling pending appeal lifted his stay right. on Friday afternoon. Although the attorney general has right. told people not general, to if you yeah. consider that uh the the law the attorney yeah. general's pronouncement. Well, the attorney general uh of uh, of Texas is uh widely considered by attorneys in Texas to be a person of few qualifications for that job. Uh he misrepresented what the Texas Supreme Court did the week before in uh, its disposition of uh, two gay divorce cases. So uh you know i wouldn't pay, place much credence on that the the big emphasis in texas now by the governor and by the attorney general is to carve out as big a religious exemption as they can to protect clerks who don't want to issue licenses to protect judges who don't want to perform marriage ceremonies uh to protect businesses that don't want to be involved in same-sex marriages and so on they want to have a very broad religious exemption and that's i think where the battle lines will be fought in texas i think the good news for gay couples in texas is the urban counties are are sort of ready and willing to do this right. people can get to those in the clerks. big cities yeah. yeah uh and and you know we have 13 states and each one presents its own individual situation i i understand in georgia people started marrying pretty quickly because the governor said we will comply with the law in uh, mississippi uh one couple got married in hattiesburg but then uh, the state clamped down because they said until the 5th circuit rules to lift the district court's stay we don't have to comply and in addition there is a technicality that people may not be aware of that the supreme court after it issues an opinion doesn't send a mandate out to the lower court until the time has expired for a motion for rehearing to be filed if no motion for rehearing is filed then they will send out the mandate right away if a motion for rehearing is filed they have to consider it and they won't send out a mandate until they've denied it now no motion for rehearing is going to be granted in this case you need five votes to grant a motion for rehearing they're not going to get it uh so i mean one of the judges in the majority has to agree that they should rehear in in order for it to happen joining with the dissenters uh so uh technically the supreme court can be waiting and i think it's several weeks that they wait uh but in the four states affected directly by this decision in the 6th circuit all of the governors and attorneys general have stated that they will abide by the decision and in all four of those states same sex couples have started marrying in fact the mayor of cincinnati in ohio conducted a mass wedding ceremony on uh, i believe friday afternoon uh so people people getting married in detroit you know uh i think there's there's compliance in those states so they're not going to be filing rehearing petitions so the supreme court uh should be sending out its mandate within a few weeks if not sooner 
Uh, and uh, once the mandate is out there, then the opinion is officially the law. And uh, recalcitrant people in other circuits uh, should probably fall into line. The 11th Circuit and the 8th Circuit had both put on hold pending arguments on appeals from marriage equality decisions in those circuits. I would think the holes will be lifted. Uh, there were a few district judges who had put their opinions on hold or who had delayed ruling on the merits. I think that's the case in one of the Dakotas. That was the case in Georgia. Those things should be resolved relatively quickly. So we should have marriage equality nationwide by mid-July at the latest, I would think, unless there's some major disruption that we're not aware of now. Uh, in terms of marriage recognition, that should go right away. And there's a specific paragraph in the uh, Kennedy's He opinion. said there's no need to wait. Uh, and I mean, there's yeah. a specific point, a uh, paragraph on recognition, where he says you right. have to, to recognize as right. well. He said, you know, we're going to answer both questions. Yeah. And the second question, he said, follows from the first. Yeah. Once a state has to allow same-sex couples to marry, there's no plausible justification for refusing to recognize marriages from other states. Yeah. The question, again, was how, how soon does that go into effect? Right. One of the plaintiff couples in the Ohio cases uh, are a gay couple from New York who married a kid who was born in Ohio. They won a birth certificate with both names on it. Uh, they'll, they were turned down. Now they can apply again, yeah. and presumably they'll get it with expedition. So it's it's been a momentous event. Now it's an have, important landmark. You've been at this for a long time. Yeah. We've been doing hard-nosed legal analysis here. What are your personal feelings on this? Do you ever think you'd, you'd live to see it? I did not expect that this would happen during my lifetime. Yeah. I, mean, I, I moved to New York in 1977. I was admitted to the bar here in 1978. I met my current partner in 79, and we've been living together ever since. Uh, we got married in Connecticut in 2009. Uh, I had never anticipated that we would be able to do that. And when I first popped the question and said, you want to get married, he said, what for? And then I explained all the legal ramifications and how it was uh, certainly for people who own real property together. We own a co-op apartment, which I guess is stock in a building, not real property in that sense. But uh, I said there are certain protections that would be very helpful to us, the marital exemption, for example, under the estates and trust law and the tax laws. Uh, so there are reasons to get married. There are also reasons not to get married, and uh, couples who are in a position of considering whether to marry should not just rush into it without thinking about the legal ramifications. Uh, if you get married, then uh, to dissolve the marriage, you need a divorce. Uh, and uh, if you get married under certain benefits programs, you may reduce the benefits you're entitled to because both members of the couple's incomes will be counted for qualifications. Uh, I'm told uh, uh, Social Security supplemental income uh, uh, presents disadvantages. And for some people, there may be significant tax disadvantages in terms of the uh, marital penalty with uh, you know, high-earning two-member two couples maybe put in a higher tax bracket. So uh, people should think about, the, about all the pros and cons before they get married, just as different sex couples should think about all the pros and cons. It's an important commitment, and it brings lots of legal uh, benefits, but it also brings responsibilities uh, and potential restrictions. All of a sudden, nepotism laws come into play, and you, you're disqualified from certain jobs because of where your spouse is employed. So uh, people should think very carefully, just as they always should and on marriage. Any predictions on what's next? What's next? Uh, within the next few weeks, we expect to see introduced in Congress an omnibus gay civil rights bill, uh, which would presumably 
insert sexual orientation and gender identity into all federal anti-discrimination laws. The chances that it will pass anytime soon are very slight, unless the Republican Party uh, experiences a collective conversion of unprecedented magnitude in a short period of time. But uh, at the same time, we have 23 states to get to work on on amending their anti-discrimination laws, and there are a few states where it seems possible within the next year or two we work hard and do the requisite political organizing that we might be able to get more protection against discrimination. Uh, in addition, there are all kinds of issues involving transgender law, involving parent-child relationships, uh, custody, visitation. There are issues involving gay students. Uh, there are issues involving reform in the criminal law and the criminal justice system. Uh, we have no lack of work for the LGBT rights movement to do. All right. Uh, just one segment in this podcast, but we covered an awful lot. For full written analysis of the U.S. Supreme Court decision, please read uh, the summer 2015 edition of Lesbian Gay Law Notes when it comes out in a couple of weeks. For now, that's all the time we have. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, if you'd like to read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or find us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you later this summer.